Dr. Anthony, you, uh, Iran was included in last year's meetings, were invited, but not this year. Why? It was not included in last year's. It was included in the year before last. The only two times that Oman has, uh, Iran has been included, has been when Qatar was the host. And Qatar has an image of uh, pushing the envelope, being innovative. And on the two occasions, I was there on both of them, uh, it was Qatar that extended the invitation. Uh, it has not been extended on any other occasion. How are the GCC countries using their economic and political capital to pressure the United States to be an honest broker in the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, and champion the cause of Palestinian statehood uh, strongly? If everyone heard the question, I'm not, I'm not aware of there being any efforts to pressure the U.S. Without exception, there are degrees of difference among the six. Um, their investments have been traditional and they've been conservative. Largely, they've been risk-averse. And this would even apply to Kuwait's seemingly more risky investments. Uh, Robert Trucks or someone can, can correct me on this, who knows more than I, but the investments in Demla Benz, uh, early in British Petroleum, and uh, Kuwait, uh, which used to be the Gulf uh, Oil Company's oil installations, in Atlanta, et cetera. Even those were, were seen to be conservative and, and traditionally risk-free, uh, in contrast to uh, some of Saudi Arabia's, which were even more traditional and conservative. The total amount that they have invested abroad is roughly $1 trillion. Half of that is in the United States. And there has been no economic pressure that comes to my mind since March 19, 1974, which was when the last Arab oil embargo uh, was terminated. And there's been an interlocking of financial and economic and increasingly commercial linkages uh, through a degree of interdependence and a mutuality of benefit and a reciprocity of reward that was probably not even dreamed of uh, two decades ago as well as the number of American companies based in the GCC region have, have not doubled, but they've, they've increased themselves by 50% in the last five years. They're, they're up from 500 companies to 750 companies in the uh, GCC region. So at the corporate level, and also at the intergovernmental level, there's a greater degree of usness and strategic uh, similarity, complementarity, than there is a competition <coughs> An adversarial, adversarial relationship that was there before. Notwithstanding, there is palpable pan-GCC concern about the way in which Arabs and Muslims are treated in the United States. Had they written about, had they joked about, had they cursed about, had they talked negatively about on the, by the pundits and on the talk shows. The existence of 400 American films uh, all of which defame and depict Arabs and Muslims in a backward, menacing, insecure, threatening, undeserving, untrustworthy manner. Despite all of that, uh, they perceive their interests uh, to be more with the United States amongst the great powers than any other collection of com competing powers at the present, for some time past, and likely for the immediately foreseeable future. If only because at the defense level there's no comparable a coalition or internationally concerted group of countries uh, that one could imagine providing the requisite deterrence and defense capabilities 
until the situations in Iraq and Iran are more stable, secure, and predictable than has been the case. Let me pose a, a double-barreled question following up on that. Uh, one question we have, ask what do the GCC states want the U.S. to do vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Are their private views more pointed than their public statements? Do the GCC states differ among themselves uh, on this? And how do they communicate their views to the U.S. government? That's a very good question, very timely, very relevant to um, what transpired at the summit. Um, Again, going back to the non-interference in the domestic affairs of other countries, the accent was on Iran complying with, abiding by, all international instruments, treaties, and agreements to which it is signatory. So they put this in the international as opposed to Iran must stop doing this, that, and the other on the inside. Uh, they reiterated, of course, their belief that Iran is thus far within its legal rights. Uh, with in terms of the non-proliferation treaty, and that it, all countries have the right to peaceful nuclear development for civilian uh, purposes. Now, as to the differences, uh, one of the foreign ministers there uh, said, we find the American and the European, as well as the Russian and Chinese process thus far, to be flawed, because it does not include us. If there is an attack on Iran's military or infrastructure or both facilities, uh, we do not see Iran striking back at China, Russia, the United States, or the European Union. We see ourselves as the easy targets. We're just minutes away. And so we are opposed to anything that would accentuate a scenario whereby we will be the victims of any use of armed force by Israel or the United States or the, or the two combined. More than a few uh, have that same analysis, uh, so at least two foreign ministers shared this with me. But one said, uh, we come at it differently. And it's because of where we sit in our own historically different strategic relationship with Iran, geopolitical relationship with Iran. Oman has a different view of this. And one needs to understand the reasons why Oman's view is different. It sits directly across from the Homo Straits from Iran. Iran on its side of the Straits has the Straits, straits ringed uh, with uh, anti-aircraft and missile batteries. Uh, so Oman is far more exposed to Iran in this geostrategic vital aspect than any of the other Gulf countries there. Secondly, Oman is the beneficiary 30 years ago of Iran sending a total of around 30,000 Iranians to Oman, never more than 3,000 at a time, usually for three months at a time, uh, to help quell what was in Dofar, Arabia's longest sustained civil insurrection in the past 100 years. There are no territorial disagreements between Iran and Oman comparable to the claims of Iran towards Bahrain comparable to the potential uh, claims of Iran vis-a-vis -vis Qatar regarding their offshore oil field, comparable to uh, Iran vis-a-vis -vis Dubai, comparable to Iran vis-a-vis -vis Kuwait, comparable to Iran vis-a-vis -vis Saudi Arabia. So Oman has a special niche and it needs to be seen as exceptional 
and the aberration, but with reason for its own strategic national interests as it formulates them. So uh, Oman is uh, not interfering any further than the GCC countries have with the language they used in the communique. Another question from the audience. Uh, please tell us about uh, the GCC's decision to form a regional security force. Uh, real rhetoric, who's going to finance it, who's going to pay for it? That's a good question. I think like a number of other wishes, uh, the expectations uh, exceed the likely near-term achievements. At the end of the liberation of Kuwait in 1991, one of the GCC countries uh, proposed that there should be a pan-GCC force built on top of the one that already existed in northwestern Saudi Arabia at Hafra al to 100,000. And people, I met with these proposals and the answer asked question was why 100,000 they said well it's the same size as one of the Iraqi Republican guards and and we think that if we had something that big that this would give Iraq or Iran cause and pause uh, to, to try to threaten us but then when they put it under the microscope three countries said look it's all we can do to build our national armed forces and defense uh, posture and we're not doing that well. We're not doing it fast enough. We're not doing it effectively or economically. To add another burden that simultaneously we try to build, train, and equip, and maintain and sustain a multinational force is just too much. No, we, we will build first a national defense establishment. And from those strengthened nationalist defense establishments, uh, we can then think of having something more ambitious. But on the rapid deployment force, uh, beyond the rhetoric, because it is difficult in the short run to see where that's coming from, certainly the UAE and Saudi Arabia both have mounted training and special operations in the last decade. It takes a while, uh, but you have to begin somewhere. You mentioned uh, Yemen's special relationship and yet its continued exclusion from the, the GCC. Could you elaborate on the agenda items on Yemen? Was the Yemeni government representative present? If so, what role did that representative play? Is there any movement on Yemen's participation in various functional committees of the GCC, health, sports, for example? Um, and is there any discussion of significant economic assistance to Yemen or direct investment in Yemen? No, good questions all. I did not see a, a, a Yemen representative at uh, this summit. I have seen some at previous ones, uh, but I looked and asked and uh, I saw none, and, and no one uh, said that there she is, there he is. Um, Alatas, uh, Abu Bakr Alatas, the former prime minister of South Yemen, was supposed to, supposed to have come, but uh, he was nowhere to, to be, be seen. Uh, Ali Salim al-Baid is no longer in Oman. He's now in uh, Vienna. He was the former president of, of South Yemen. Um, other representatives of various groups in uh, Yemen uh, were certainly not present. But as to the kinds of assistance or reactions and responses by the GCC, there are the following. And they were the core members uh, three to four years ago at a donors meeting in London 
where $4.3 billion uh, was pledged to alleviate uh, Yemen's uh, uh, widespread economic difficulties. That has yet to make its way through to the end accuser. And each of the donors has their own reason, lack of feasibility studies, lack of institutions, lack of transparency, uh, too much uh, corruption, or capital intensive versus labor intensive. We, we want these to be job creating. So there's a lot of divergence of reasons of why that hasn't gotten through. However, this last September in Jeddah, at one of the quarterly GCC members, they committed $3.8 billion to Yemen as, as of three months ago. I haven't yet seen that written up here, but $3.8 this last uh, September. And then Saudi Arabia alone uh, provides $1 billion a year to Yemen. There has been a Saudi Arabian-Yemen joint commission for some time now, begun under the chairmanship of Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince, uh, Sultan uh, bin Abdulaziz. Uh, but $1 billion a year has been pumped in there for quite some time. And earlier, Saudi Arabia's aid to Yemen was recognized by the World Bank and the IMF and others as greater than all of the aid coming from the World Bank, the IMF, the Dutch, the Germans, and, and others uh, contributing to uh, Yemen's economy. There is a knee-jerk objection and rejection to it being a full-fledged member on the following grounds. I gave one of them uh, that it came into existence on the ashes of these very kinds of regimes that have uh, the inherent right of self-protection uppermost on them, their minds. There is, as well, the reality of Yemen's demography, 27 million people, 130,000 villages of under 200 people in each. We have only 200 people in a village, you have no school, you have no road, you have no electric power, you have no sewage system, you have no clinic. So at each of the GCC meetings with a country that has these kinds of needs, so dramatically in contrast to the others, it would distract, it would delay, it would preclude easy consensus or easier consensuses as such. So the view has been, let's help Yemen, not off the books, but separately in a bilateral way. And so Saudi Arabia has been doing this longer, but so has Oman, and so has the United Arab Emirates. And the United Arab Emirates' late last leader, Sheikh Zayed, believed through genealogists and archaeologists that his ancestral roots were in the Wadi Nahyan, which feeds into the Mareb Dam complex. And so he gave thousands of Yemenis uh, citizenship. I think one or two of them might be here in this room. There. So these kinds of additional ways, and on the Omani side, the building of a road that had to have cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars from Dofar to linking the uh, Oman to the easternmost and most impoverished of all of Yemen's provinces, Makra State, in easternmost uh, Yemen, uh, was all undertaken uh, by the Sultanate of Oman. So there are these different ways. They, they are now members of nine GCC committees. Up until about five years ago, they were only members of about two or three. Uh, Yemen is offering two million of its laborers to work on the GCC projects, which is a big offer, and it could meet some of the GCC countries' manpower needs. On the other hand, they're typically not well-educated. 
and they're not of the skills and experience that the GCC economies need, which are more middle level and, and upper level uh, people. Uh, does that give you a feel for what they're going on? How does the railroad railroad development uh, you described uh, play against Dubai's role uh, as a financial center uh, in light of uh, the Dubai world default? Uh, does the railroad agreement represent a shift to an alternate form of economic activity? Thank you. I'd invite anybody else's comment on this because I'm not an engineer and I'm not a conductor uh, and not an economist either. Uh, it's seen as an additive and not as a, a competitive. On the other hand, analytically, it is seen as competitive. And what I have to say here comes from two of today's leading economic strategists, analysts, decision makers. And both of them have told me that when Salala in Oman is connected to this road network, at railway network, and it's not at this point, even, uh, in terms of the feasibility planning, we see ourselves losing up to 20% of what we have now. Why? Because for the traffic going into the Gulf, the bulk of it's going for the markets in Iran by way of Dubai. And they know every inch of the 550 mile southern Iranian coastline there. But it's a detour to go into the Gulf. If you think of the east-west maritime routes heading west towards the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, and beyond to Europe, Atlantic and beyond, it's a day and a half detour with all the fuel, monetary, savings, insurance, everything. Plus, you have to go through the Homo Strait, where, home, where the, the Lords of London will take you to the cleaners, clean your clock, uh, when there's hostility and tension in the region. At least a day, if not two days, sometimes three days to offload or to onload. Another day and a half back out just to get into the regular shipping lanes. So Salala is the better per, uh, uh, poised in position by far. And the bay has uh, made out extraordinarily well all these years. Uh, but when it began, Oman was locked down into its guerrilla war, the civil war in Dofar. And national security trumps uh, economic development and modernization eight days a week. And so Oman could not take advantage of its more favorable geographic position then. But Dubai did. Uh, but it, it remains to be seen how long Dubai can hold that commanding lead. Uh, it, the decision makers have said, we, we calculate we'll lose 20% uh, when that happens. It'll be so much more economical for people to offload at Salala and then by rail or by air take it from there to Beirut, Athens, and places further beyond and not need to come into the Gulf to the degree that they have been thus far. Let me go back, Dr. Anthony, to the uh, Yemen question and come at it from the other side. In the final communique, uh, the Yemen position is coupled with uh, a prior statement about Saudi Arabia's rights to defend its territorial integrity, uh, its cultural uh, integrity. And I wonder how you respond to uh, so much of the Western reporting and, and how the members of the GCC see the threat both to Saudi Arabia from the immediate disputes along the border with Yemen, but also the broader question that gets so much more dramatic attention of whether or not 
there is something approaching a proxy war going on here where uh, Iran, where a Shia threat is being staged from, uh, from Yemen that is a serious threat to the kingdom. One, it's, it's difficult to know because it's in one of the most remote, uh, least uh, visited regions of Yemen, in the northernmost regions, and Sada is the center of it. Uh, not far from the Saudi Arabian southwestern border, which itself, if you come in from Saudi Arabia's side, is also one of the most least accessible for foreign visitors uh, uh, to travel to. Uh, so much of the information that we're reading uh, may be skewed because it's coming from secondhand or non-empirically validated or authenticated uh, people on the ground. We know of one person that uh, we, we work with, uh, uh, Peter from National Public Radio, who did make it to Sada there. Um, the aspects of it being a proxy war, of Iran uh, being extensively or even minimally involved, uh, I have yet to see the evidence. And all of the uh, Saudi Arabians that I've spoken with, as well as Yemenis, uh, all of the Saudi Arabians I've spoken with deny that. Some of the Yemenis that I've spoken with imply that or allow one to infer that uh, because it certainly does get your attention. Uh, when they uh, make the claim or insinuate that Iran is behind these rebels. Uh, I don't see it myself. Unless you say that because people in Iran cheer when they hear that uh, a group of Yemeni rebels uh, gave uh, Saudi Arabia a blow, uh, that would hardly count as, as operational assistance or something that could be a deal maker or a deal breaker. What is the future of alternative energy sources among the GCC countries? Uh, does the US-UAE-123 agreement uh, set the stage for establishing a peaceful uh, civilian nuclear power generation uh, regimen uh, inside uh, the GCC and beyond? These are great questions. Uh because I would have overlooked uh, addressing that. Uh, but yes, um, indeed, it is being discussed in the following context. The country that's focused on it more than any other is Kuwait, for two reasons. Uh, when the Chernobyl disaster happened in 1986, there was an international fund under the UN auspices established to help relocate the 200,000 people in the Chernobyl region who had were displaced for health reasons. It had to be relocated elsewhere. Uh, Kuwait was a major contributor to that fund, and the fund managers delegated Kuwait uh, to administer it. And so since 1986, Kuwait has been into the nuclear issue there. And research through Kuwait Institute for Science and Research and Kuwait University and elsewhere have come up with the equivalent of double-hulled vessels. Uh, after the spills of the Exxon Valdez's, the notion that, well, if, if hulls of great oil tankers could have double hull, hulls, the first one could take the blow of an accident, an iceberg, or a mine blast, or some subterfuge of some kind, uh, but the ship would set right because it, it had a second hull inside. And so that their view on this is that that's worth looking at if you're concerned about the contagion and the radiation possible effects uh, from a Chernobyl-like disaster. 
Secondly, I've sat in meetings with Iranians, Iraqis, and Kuwaitis uh, where they have discussed this, and the Kuwaitis are the most uh, alarmed in those meetings because there have been people from Oman and Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar and Bahrain in those meetings as well. Uh, because the Kuwaiti's research has led them to conclude that if, if there's in any accident at the Bushir plant, which is the one closest to the Gulf and the one for which the, the, the Russians uh, the, the contracted suppliers of, of the fuel, that this would immediately have a contagion effect of psychological uh, proportions that are limited only by the imagination in terms of people not even entering the Gulf. And because Kuwait has no pipelines out, out of the Gulf, oil or gas or anything else, and is totally dependent upon that 550 to 600 mile uh, route from Kuwait to the uh, exit of the Gulf, uh, it sees its power plants shut down, it sees its desalination plants shut down. So Kuwait is into the nuclear aspect in a way that's less publicized than what you've read about this past year of the United Arab Emirates. The UAE's agreement is but one model of, of how to go. What I just alluded to, Kuwait is, is tinkering with another one. But thirdly, Kuwait's energy situation it pales into uh, contrast with Saudi Arabia's and Qatar's uh, because much of its energy is derivative of, of oil. And oil is thicker, it has more pollutants, and the sulfuric uh, content there is more damaging to the environment. And so in this age of green and leaving uh, a more indelible, cleaner environmental footprint, they're into this uh, and serious about it. So that's where Kuwait is coming from and why it has been discussing with Iran and Qatar using gas uh, as opposed to continuing to rely on oil for its energy needs and the nuclear at the same time to prolong the oil and gas reserves uh, to have a cleaner uh, fuel and, and one that would not be as uh, damaging to the environment. Now, Saudi Arabia in the summit that I went to in December of 2006 uh, pushed through a resolution whereby all six would from thenceforth cooperate with the International Atomic Energy Agency in Paris for peaceful nuclear development purposes. And when we asked uh, why then and why in that way, the answer was kind of clever and said, look, if, if you live next door to a neighbor and your neighbor just bought a shotgun, uh, what do you think your neighbor would think if you didn't buy one also? Uh, so that was too clever by half, but the atmospheric receptivity to do something because of December 2006 was as close as I've seen the more hawkish element in the U.S. government uh, seemingly intent on bringing uh, Iran uh, down on this particular issue. And, and meetings that some of you who are in the government or then were in the government, you said in the same ones I said in there where people on the NSC and elsewhere said no enrichment is to be allowed in terms of Iran. We're already past that, way past that. And we're also past the mid-September deadline. Uh, but you see these several different ways of approaching the uh, use of alternate energy fuels. And the area between Kuwait and Iran is believed to be vast, yet to be discovered, uh, gas uh, deposits. And Qatar, on its side, is as a gas producer, as a gas exporter, is looking for customers. And, and Kuwait is seriously leaning and inclined in that direction.
I won't give you long to sit down here. Uh, does the movement toward a common Gulf currency also represent a step toward moving the, the Gulf currencies away from being pegged to the U.S. dollar? The short answer is no, and so is the long one. Uh, but there's a context for this. Uh, four years ago at the summit in uh, Abu Dhabi in the UAE, uh, inflation was, was rampant in the region. Uh, no, no GCC country had less than 12% inflation then, which is unusual for them. Some had 16%. And so at that time, uh, there was talk that maybe we should revisit this. And Kuwait has been the wisest all along, because whereas all the others denominate their currency to the American dollar or peg it to the American dollar from the International Monetary Exchange me Mechanism for Financial Transactions, Kuwait has a basket of currencies which protects itself when the dollar's upwards down it, it fluctuates. Even though the American dollar is the biggest egg in that basket of currencies. So the consensus as I gathered it is that we will remain pegged to the dollar in part for the reasons I've given before, the trillion dollars that they have invested abroad. Half of those are invested in the United States. Secondly, that most of the world's central banks hold large amounts of U.S. Treasury instruments in their uh, reserve uh, currencies, and so they know that they're not out of step in this particular regard. And thirdly, they believe that uh, this, over time, with education and information playing a role here, will possibly allow Americans to expand their perception of us as just being gas stations, uh, that we're also countries, uh, that we're not just objects, that we're also actors. We're not just uh, uh, people who are to be manipulated and exploited and taken advantage of, but people who deserve a seat at the table. They were able to push this point in the last year, in October last year, just before the election, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Treasury went to every GCC country but one, uh, not exactly with begging bowl in hand, uh, but in a way to say, what can you people do to, to help us over this uh, crisis that we have here? Uh, there has been a positive response from Kuwait, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE on these kinds of things. And their hope is that people will see us as financially supportive and an enabler of America's preeminent status in international financial institutions and as a world superpower to continue. Now, this is what we bring to the table. America needs it, we have it. What we resent is being asked to be there on the landing, but seldom if ever on the takeoff. We demand being there on the takeoff too. And in September they were. There was the G20 and Saudi Arabia represented all of them for the first time. Take uh, two more questions. <clears throat> if that's all right with you, Dr. Anthony. Um, what is the uh, GCC stance uh, on addressing the, quote, human rights issues uh, which appear on American media? And the second question is, why are the GCC countries purchasing large blocks of farmland in Africa? On the human rights one, that's, that's a sensitive one, as it would be for any country, especially when the Concern is coming from the outside, and it's got to the point with the European Union that at the last summit they, they, they halted what had been their negotiations with the EU since 1987. From 86 they agreed they'd try to have a free trade agreement. 
and they started meeting annually in 1987, and last year they counseled them because they put no demands on the EU countries with regard to, again, interfering in EU countries' domestic affairs. The EU countries did put demands on the GCC countries there with regard to human rights and monitoring mechanisms as well. And the GCC countries uh, rejected both of those across the board. Again, on the grounds of mutuality of benefit reciprocal respect. So that one's frozen. In the interim, though, they have signed a free trade agreement with the European Free Trade Association in the, in the last year. And they've also signed one with New Zealand and they signed one with Singapore. Uh, there are no such talks, to, to my knowledge, uh, with regard to North America uh, as such. Uh, that, that's a human rights one. The second one on that was purchasing of land in Africa. That's another good one because some of you are old enough or young enough to remember the second televised uh, TV debate between uh, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford in 1975 when Carter and Ford were contesting the presidency there, and Joe Kraft of the Washington Post said, Governor Carter, if the Saudis ever proclaim an oil embargo on us again, what would you do? And immediately he said, well, I would immediately proclaim a food embargo on them. And boy, you could have heard a pin drop between Washington and Riyadh there. That was when they viewed agricultural self-reliance and food production as of strategic issues. And this was when they brought in their agribusiness that didn't exist before. They had a rural middle class they didn't have before. They expanded their chambers of commerce. They became the world's sec seventh largest exporter of wheat okay, and inside of one de decade. And they became famous for exporting strawberries to France in January and tulips to the Netherlands also in, in January. But they did it at great cost to their own natural water resources, their aquifers, etc. And so they have now said, no, we are going to stop that and we will purchase all of our necessary food uh, imports because of the strategic value of water. So it's a gamble. It's a gamble in two ways. One, it, they don't have the control over it because it's in another country's uh, territory, national sovereignty, political independence. And two, it's a gamble in terms of what do you do with the middle class of the hundreds of thousands of Saudi vacants you've created? who work in these cooperatives and on these farms. Saudi Arabia has the world's two largest dairy farms. One of them has 17,000 milk cows, and the one right beside it is 13,000 milk cows. So uh, these are questions that uh, have implications once you get to the implementation area. But it's Kenya, it's Tanzania, it's Uganda, and Sudan. These are the areas. And it's not just the GCC countries, uh, Mauritius and other countries are investing in, in those four as an effort to try to have food supplies nearer and cheaper, both in terms of labor as well as the end user cost. Was that third one on that? Let me, let me ask where would it be? Uh, we'll ask a, a, a question that will also, I hope, open up for your wrap-up statement as well, Dr. Anthony, and that is, what specific actions would the GCC states wish to see from the Obama administration to begin actualizing the promises of the President's Cairo speech and his other initiatives toward the Arab and the Islamic world? Well, in the communique, the one that was uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, directed in that area was uh, to end the siege of Gaza. And the, the siege in international law is seen as an act of war. And this siege has been going on for two and a half years. And that 
not a single uh, dwelling that was bombed uh, to smithereens last January has been rebuilt. Uh, is its own testimony of people's concern that why cannot the United States at least get an exemption from the Israeli government to American goods going into Gaza? Uh, they have no answer for that, and they, they would ask an outsider, what is the answer for that? Uh, those who are graduates in uh, political science, international relations, and the like, or American studies, uh, are prone to say we understand that all politics are local, and that the president came to the White House uh, at a time of severe national as well as international economic crisis, financial crisis, credit crisis, liquidity crisis there. And he has to get America's economic material house in order before he can do any of these other things there. And on the health care issue in particular, but also jobs creation, they're willing to cut significant slack there. Uh, but at the same time, they, they think that the Israeli policies are in the short term and the long term self-defeating. Uh, that uh, Gaza has become, in many people's views, an open-air prison. It's not as the West Bank, where, uh, to use the phrase that uh, people do not live by bread alone, but by many things, people do not always die at once. Sometimes they die from this brick, this cut, this slice, this humiliation, this uh, wound, this injury, until the father or the mother says to the children, pack up uh, your suitcase and we're, we're, we're leaving for the children and the grandchildren. We just can't take it anymore. That happens in the West Bank. These people become faceless statistics. They don't show up on anybody's radar screen. But in Gaza, you can't even get out, let alone get in. Okay. And so the Palestinian people are usually very resourceful and resilient. Were they allowed to leave, they would make their way, many of them, to, to other clowns. Uh, as those before them did. But if, if there's no release, if there's no escape, you, you're, you're building up a powder keg, keg which is bound to explode repeatedly, and you have no one to blame but yourself. So they, they fail to see why the U.S. at a minimum won't stand for this humanitarian issue, especially when the American school was, was bombed in Gaza, rather Israelis, and especially the U.N. institutions we have a friend who heads one of the UN agencies, and he said, anticipating this, we gave the Israelis Act coordinates so that they wouldn't make a mistake. <laughs> that was the wrong thing for us to do, because we took it flat bullseye. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, we will wrap up uh, this afternoon's presentation.